Hello, everyone. This is Jim Hughes with AFIO Now. We are a program of recorded interviews with retired senior U.S. intelligence officers. And today we have a really special treat. I'm welcoming back to the program a good friend and former colleague uh, from CIA's Near East Division. Um, Sam Wyman has degrees from um, both Georgetown and Columbia University. He studied Arabic at Baghdad University, which he told us about um, in our last program. Uh, and he is a former CIA operations officer, uh, chief of station and division chief with a background in the Middle East, Africa and Europe. And currently he is the vice chairman and chief operating officer of uh, Jefferson Waterman International. Sam, welcome back to AFIO Now. Very nice to be here, Jim. Very nice to recall old times together, uh, playing in the Middle Eastern sandbox. Sam, as we discussed off camera, um, since we're going to be scrolling back um, about 50 years in history, and some of this history is really shrouded in the mists of time, we thought it'd be good for me to provide a little bit of a background notes um, for our viewing audience uh, as kind of a scene setter. So I'm going to take everybody back um, to Jordan uh, in the period June to September of 1970. Uh, it, as everyone knows, after the 1948 and 1967 wars, uh, many Palestinian refugees fled to one of the surrounding Arab countries, Lebanon, Syria, Jordan, Egypt. And there was a very large Palestinian presence in Jordan. Over time, the armed factions of this Palestinian presence um, became kind of a state within a state in, Pal in uh, Jordan and uh, were uh, constituting a threat to stability. And this finally erupted into hostilities uh, between armed Palestinians and the uh, Jordanian armed forces. Um, ultimately, um, JF forces actually surrounded uh, Palestinian camps um, in and around uh, uh, Amman and elsewhere, shelled the camps, and then there were a series of battles that were uh, conducted in and around Amman and then um, further north between June and September, culminating in the Jordanian armed forces actually expelling uh, armed Palestinians um, from Jordan in September of 1970 so-called Black September, Ilul al-Aswad. Um, <clears throat> this led to the creation of one of the uh, radical Palestinian organizations called the Black September Organization. And they began uh, conducting a number of um, violent operations, initially targeted against uh, Jordanian politicians and military leaders, uh, probably the best known operation was the assassination of Wasfital in uh, summer of 1971 in Cairo, because Wasfital had been a commander of um, Jordanian forces. Um, this also led to um, Kilo, Fatah, and Palestinian fighters um, moving from Jordan through Syria and primarily into Lebanon, where they reestablished themselves and set up their headquarters. <laughs> in Beirut and Southern Lebanon. Um, ultimately, um, that added radical Palestinian presence in Southern Lebanon um, increased the tensions between various factions in Lebanon, which led to the 
uh, Lebanese civil war between 1975 and 1990. Uh, initially, almost all of the um, BSO operations were targeted against uh, Jordanian authorities, but over time, um, they refocused their efforts primarily against Israel, involved in a number of uh, aircraft uh, hijackings and other operations. Um, Sam, you've got some personal history with that. You want to tell our audience a little bit about the one um, attempted aircraft hijacking that you had a, a personal experience with? I will, but let me make a couple of com other comments first on your historical summary. I think it's important that our listeners appreciate that in the months leading up to Black September 1970, it was stated PLO strategy to take over Jordan and the effort of the, the behind the arming the movement by armed Palestinians uh, was essentially to establish the PLO as the primary governing force, if you will, in Jordan uh, to either subjugate the king and the royal family or remove them. And it fortunately, the Jordanian army and the Jordanian royal family realized this was happening before it got too far out of hand in the uh, ultimate sense of the term and thus created Black September when they expelled them, when the Jordanian armed forces expelled the PLO um, out of Jordan into Syria and Lebanon, as you suggest. Uh, the arrival of large numbers of largely Muslim Palestinians into Lebanon specifically upset the sectarian balance that had been running Lebanon or governing Lebanon for many, for decades prior to Black September. And the predominant Christians saw the demographic change as a mortal threat to their continued paramountcy in Lebanon. And this is essentially what led to the start of the launching of the Lebanese Civil War when a group of armed Christian guerrillas, if you will, attacked a bus full of Palestinians, slaughtered them. That was in April of 75, and the rest of it was downhill and stayed downhill for the next 15 years of very bloody fighting. Now, as far as the, the atmosphere and the operating climate in Lebanon, I would say that by midsummer 1975, shootings, killings, ambushes, hijackings, carjackings uh, were fairly constant fare throughout much of Beirut. They would flare up and then they would dissipate for a few days and then they'd flare up again. It made operating in heretofore delightful, pleasant, idyllic Beirut a pretty dismal uh, prospect. And in fairly short order, quote, non-essentials, unquote, uh, were evacuated from Beirut because the PLO became the, in many respects, the fighting arm of the Sunni Muslims versus the Christians, whether it be Shamuns, Christians, or any other number of groups that were uh, either fighting among themselves for supremacy or fighting uh, with, fighting alongside each other against the Palestinians. 
as you may remember, Jim, I was there from well, June of 75 through to mid-summer of 76. My family was evacuated from Beirut in November of 75, and they went off to Athens uh, along with the rest of the station, uh, station dependents. And we were left with a fairly hard core with Claire George as the chief of station, Charlie Waterman as deputy, myself, a couple of others, in an effort to report on what was going on and see if there wasn't some way we could resolve the civil war issues by talking to both sides on behalf of the embassy and, and the State Department and, and on, as in collectors of intelligence. It was, I recall that we, to get from my apartment uh, in West Beirut to the embassy, which in those days was West Beirut as well, there were six different checkpoints run by six different groups. Uh, no Christians on that side, all different Muslim groups. Some were Palestinian, some were Lebanese, some were the Shia hadn't really moved up from the south yet into West Beirut by that time. They were starting to flow in, but it hadn't really happened yet. But nevertheless, it made it made moving around, uh, meeting, meeting assets, uh, supporting assets, keeping an eye on what was happening, uh, it made it kind of tricky. And we used to joke a little bit to make sure uh, about, about making sure that we had something in our vehicles if we were doing a car pickup or something, that would be of value to a potential carjacker or kidnapper, such as a, I don't know, a set of golf clubs in the trunk. Remember, Jeff O'Connell lost his golf clubs because it was the only thing that saved another case officer who was using Jeff's car and got stopped at the checkpoint, was able to offer up the golf clubs uh, in exchange for letting him go. So we began to joke a bit about make sure you have a flashy cheap gold watch on or something that you could offer to your potential kidnappers and they would turn let you let you go in exchange for the, the watch. I don't know what happened after they figured out the watches were largely Chinese fakes, but um, anyhow, um, the tradecraft and whatnot became literally a matter of life and death on occasion, as well as operational security. You thought very, very carefully about the routes you were taking and where you would ask somebody to be to meet you or how you would set up a meeting. We developed some pretty interesting types of uh, covert communications to alert assets to the need for a meeting or short burst uh, stratcom for quick reporting. The fighting between the, shall we say, the Christian side and the Muslim side became pretty intense and particularly between the Christians based up in the mountains and the various Muslim groups, but down primarily in West Beirut and along the green line that separated the West from the East. The, unfortunately, the apartment building that I lived in and Jeff O'Connell lived in was right in the direct line of fire between a Christian battery in the mountains at Beit Mary and a Marabitun battery down in the Ba Militaire on the coast in West Beirut below our apartment. Most of the time, it was the, the harrowing uh, atmosphere was the sound of these artillery shells going back and forth. And if you've ever heard one, you'll never forget it. It's like a, a, a railway locomotive coming right through your window. We used to joke that as long as you could hear it, you were okay. Because when you couldn't hear it, you were in trouble. 
And unfortunately, uh, both the Christians and the Murabitun were not the best target ears because the, I think the top of our building took direct tips a couple of times, uh, at least once from incoming Christian rounds and another outgoing from the Muslim round. And that top floor of the building had several holes through it. Let's put it that way. And when that happened, you really knew you were uh, right in the, in the middle of the, of the conflict. And one ended up spending most of one time uh, hovered or hunkered down in, in your bathroom because that's where you had four walls that could, could uh, provide pretty solid protection. We had some Christian assets that were based in the Christian side of the city, which meant if we couldn't contact them by, if the uh, electricity was out or your telephones had been destroyed, you had to go to make personal meetings, and which meant driving across the green line that separated the west from the east. This meant, in those days, driving along something known then as the fish trap, because there was only one way to get across. You either went through the port, which was blocked off by the Muslims, or you went through this, quote, fish trap, unquote, which no longer exists. It's now an over a fancy overpass built by Rafiq Hariri. But the Muslims on the west could see you coming, and the Christians on the east would see you coming, whichever way you were going. And so we ended up with driving armored Dodge Chargers or Chryslers, which we had a, a few of in the embassy, and uh, essentially hunkering down with our heads barely above the dashboard so we just barely see where we were going until we got through the fish trap. We'd get out on the other side and you you were were safe, or you thought you were anyway. Did that about a half a dozen times, and fortunately I can still here to talk about it. But the 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 booming and the banging was fairly constant. And moving around the city to make meetings, to pay assets, keep reporting going. We did it, but it was it was Fairly nerve-wracking, I'll put it that way. It was kind of fun because it kept the blood going and the adrenaline was pumping. But it was, and I think it served a purpose because we really knew what was going on and we could keep Washington informed quite in, in quite great detail about what was happening on all sides. Fortunately, Bob Ames had developed the relationship with Ali Hassan Salama and turned that relationship over to Charlie Waterman. And we had a excellent, excellent window into machinations on the Palestinian side. And through Ali Hassan, we also had a window on the machinations of the large, the Muslim side of the of the conflict, because the Ali Hassan Salama was in charge of Office 17, which was a which was Fatah's operational arm on behalf of Arafat. And we had pretty good contacts on the Christian side as well. Uh, through the Shamoons and others, so we could keep pretty close tabs on who was doing what to whom on a larger, more strategic basis. I think that sort of sets kind of the background, Jim. Yeah, so that's a great background center for our audience to kind of put them in the picture and help them understand um, what was going on at that time. So Ali Hassan Salama, in the early 70s, created Force 17 which became the intelligence and security arm of Fatah and ultimately um, Yasser Arafat's personal security uh, organization. Uh, as Sam mentioned, uh, a former um, CIA operations officer from Beirut Station developed a relationship with Ali Hassan Salama. 
And then that relationship was turned over and meetings were actually held in Beirut. Sam, you want to tell the audience a little bit about what it was like to meet with Ali Hassan in Beirut? I had the, I was fortunate to be Ali Hassan's handler for several months from late, late 75 through mid early summer 76. Got to know him quite well. He was an, an extraordinary individual, uh, very intelligent, very macho, very physically fit, kind of person as my wife, who met him once, described he's the kind of person when he walked into the room, he took the breath away. He sucked up all the oxygen. It was his personality. He was just he wasn't overbearing. He was just very a person very much in charge of himself and his his uh, surroundings. I emphasize he was extremely intelligent. He was Arafat's crown prince in many respects. He was the either the son or the grandson of one of the great Palestinian struggle heroes, Khalil al-Hassan, Khalil al-Hassan Salami, who was well known in the in the history of Palestinian efforts to establish a state and fight the British and fight the French and anybody else who wanted to control the Palestinians. So he was a, a crown prince as well as a as a revered, Ali Hassan was a crown prince as well as a revered figure in, in Palestinian lore. He enjoyed the complete trust of Arafat. It was a, really was a father-son relationship. It was a, it was well known and accepted that when Arafat passed away, Ali Hassan would succeed him as leader, of the, the Palestinian leader, certainly leader of the PLO. There were challengers to that role, but they didn't last very long. I emphasize that Ali was quite quite intelligent. He also had a worldview that was relatively unique uh, among your Palestinian operations types because he could see a the big picture. He did believe he did want to see a a peaceful settlement, if you will. He believed it was possible to have, to work out some sort of peaceful arrangement between. The among the Palestinians and the Arabs and the Israelis. And he, although he was a master practitioner of the use of terror and terror operations, he did, I think, believe sincerely that violence was only a tool. It was not a way of life. I don't know if that answers your question, Jim, but... Um, um, describe a meeting for us, Sam. What was it like to meet Ali Hassan in Beirut in those days? Well, the, um, the meetings that I had with him took place in my apartment. He came to those meetings, wasn't trying to, to hide his, his role, his, his, his um, presence. Uh, he also wasn't, wasn't terribly interested in hiding his, his trail because he was unique in the sense that he didn't, he believed he was above it all. He didn't, he knew the Israelis were, were after him, uh, but he said, they'll never get me. He practiced very poor uh, personal security tradecraft, as far as I'm concerned. In fact, it got to the point where I said, look, when you're coming to see me, please don't have a, a Doshka truck going in front of you and a Doshka truck coming behind you with sirens blaring, because I don't want people to know that you're coming up to see me. And if you do that, please park somewhere else and walk over. But we would meet in my apartment late at night. <laughs> the concierge of the building once stopped me and said, 
You think you could meet somewhere else? So he did this fella didn't come to the building. <laughs> Anyhow, we met. I would say we met uh, probably at least once a week, maybe once every ten days. He was completely open with me. I was fortunate to have very good intelligence on my side, so that I knew when he might be overstating a situation or perhaps misrepresenting a situation, and I could get him back on track. This worked to our benefit a couple of times. There was once when one of our Christian assets called me on the phone while I was having a meeting with, with Ali Hassan and said that was complaining and asking the Americans to do something to stop the Palestinian, stop Palestinian tanks coming over the, the mountains from Syria with Syrian troops. And Ali was standing right next to me when I got this phone call. He didn't know who I was talking to, but I, he, um, put my hand over the receiver and I looked over at Ali and I said, you got tanks coming over the hill? And he made a quick phone call, said, no, not, not ours. So I was able to get back to the Christian and say, you better check your information because it's not accurate. Now you may well say, why did I believe Ali? And I didn't believe the Christian. I said, it's gotten to the point where I would believe him on something like that because I just, his information had been checking out all along. He, as we all know, he was the he was the mastermind behind the planning of the Munich 1972 hit against the uh, Olympics, that horrible, horrible slaughter of Israeli athletes. And the entire the, the war between the Israelis and the Palestinians or between the Israelis and PLO and specifically the BSO really moved into high gear thereafter. It was when the Israelis created their their special operation to bring down all of those involved in the planning of that operation. And Ali Hassan was at the top of the list. And as some of you may recall, there was a, an effort to, to assassinate a Palestinian whom the Israelis thought was Ali Hassan in Lilihama. And it turned out it wasn't Ali Hassan. And the, this created a lot of bad water for the Israelis, but it also showed to the Palestinians how intent the Israelis were on on getting after their leadership. Sam, before we get into the um, Israeli retaliation uh, that they call wrath of God, um, can you characterize for our audience, what was the importance of the relationship to the US government and to the CIA and what kind of insights did we get into um, kind of the senior leadership of PLO Fatah and what was going on inside um, Palestinian organizations? Well, I can't. I don't remember any specifics, but I do remember that we felt pretty confident that we knew what was going on inside the leadership of the PLO and inside Black September and so on. Ali Hassan was not our only asset in that regard. We had three or four run from Beirut, a couple of whom would tell us what Ali Hassan was doing and things that Ali Hassan wasn't telling us himself, but they were our penetrations of the Palestinian leadership. Uh, separate from and alongside Ali Hassan, we had a pretty good idea of what uh, what Arafat was thinking, in part from Ali Hassan, but also from, from these others. As you know, at that time, the U.S. government, or at least the State Department and the CIA, were enjoined by Kissinger from having any direct contact with the PLO. And so this relationship, clandestine relationship with Ali Hassan, was extremely sensitive from a U.S. political point of view, as well as from a, the point of view of U.S.-Israeli relations. 
And he, we felt, at least in, in Beirut Station and I think in any division, we felt pretty confident that we knew what was happening and we knew what the PLO leadership was thinking. We used the channel not so much as a direct way to pass messages to Arafat per se, but our discussions with Ali, we knew would be summarized, gisted, be the basis for discussions that Ali himself would have with Arafat and other leaders. And so our efforts to, or the U.S. government's efforts to, shall we say, guide the direction of the of Palestinian activities were facilitated by the use of this channel to push ideas toward Arafat. It may well be that Ali Hassan told Arafat that he had specifically heard X, Y, and Z from me or from Charlie or from somebody else. I don't know that per se, but I'm assuming it. But nevertheless, we we used Ali Hassan as a voice for reason, we hoped, uh, monitoring the Palestinian approaches to various political developments in the in the area. Ali Hassan met with Vernon Walters at one point uh, secretly and committed to Walters that if Arafat would support the peace plan, which was underway at that time, he would ask Ali Hassan and his people to protect Americans in West Beirut as a way to facilitate the ongoing efforts to find a peaceful settlement. And Walters got a commitment from Arafat at that time, which was then implemented by Ali Hassan, to provide protection to Americans in West Beirut, including the embassy. This came to fruition uh, when the Americans were evacuated from Beirut in the summer of 76. Ali facilitated the, a convoy going to the port where American citizens, not U.S. government necessarily, but American citizens living in Beirut were helped to leave the country via sea. A second convoy but by road was facilitated by Ali, in which I drove the remains of the assassinated American ambassador and economic counselor. I drove their remains out of Beirut to Damascus through the Shuf Valley. Um, Ali told me, look, I can protect you as, far, as long as you're in, in Palestinian lines. Once you get across those lines and get into Syrian territory, you're out of my hands. But I can get you as far as the as, as the Shuf and into the Shuf, which he did. A couple of firefights getting us through the Syrian lines, but we got through. I had a great big, huge American flag over the top of the van in which the two coffins were secured. I think that helped us get through, but it was rather fast over, over broken field driving to get through that line. But nevertheless, we did and got up to Damascus and everything was fine. And the Americans got out through the port. The other convoy got out through the port. So, and I met Ali a couple of times thereafter. Uh, I recall turning him over to Frank Anderson at one point. It was an exciting, very exciting um, agent handling responsibility. And then for our audience's benefit, um, if we fast forward a little bit to um, January of 1979, of course, um, Ali Hassan was assassinated by the Israelis during a Mossad operation in Beirut uh, as part of Wrath of God. I know you don't have any personal um, knowledge of that, but uh, did you want to talk about that just a little bit? Well, as I'd mentioned earlier, uh, Ali had little regard for his own personal security. He, he knew the Israelis were after him. I told him time and again 
to be careful, to be to watch his trail because it was just going to be just a matter of time before the Israelis would mount a hit against him. And he said, they can't do it, they can't do it. He really, really, he, he was very, very arrogant in that regard. And he did nothing to cover his tracks. There is no uh, counter surveillance runs or anything along that line. He always took the same route in the same vehicle with the same security fore and aft. And we all, I'm, I'm sure many, most people know the story of the lady who sat on the balcony overlooking the route that he took and uh, was able to trigger uh, the bombs, explosive loaded in a VW Beetle parked along the street that deca effectively decapitated Ali Hassan. The Israelis asked us, asked the agency and the U.S. government many times to confirm that Ali Hassan was our agent. We refused. And uh, to my knowledge, we never officially acknowledged that Ali Hassan was our asset. He was never a recruited asset, never a recruited paid agent, uh, although there were, there were those in the agency who wanted him to be a recruited agent and insisted that a recruitment effort be tried, which almost which failed and almost lost us the relationship. During the uh, early 73, there was an effort to, to formally recruit him. He rejected it, broke contact with us for a while. In fact, they pulled off an operation in, in August of 73 against TWA in Athens Airport to show his, um, his disdain at the effort to suborn him and Palestinian movement to American policy. Sam, you have some um, personal experience with that TWA operation in Athens. Would you like to tell the audience about that? Well, as fate had it, I was that summer I had been on vacation with my family. I was stationed in Saudi Arabia. I had been on vacation with my family in, in Greece and had been called back to meet with a Saudi asset who had signaled for an emergency meeting, so to speak. And I was on my way back from Athens to Beirut to pick up a plane to go to Saudi Arabia. And we were standing, it was a Middle East Airlines check-in counter, which just happened to be next to the TWA check-in counter that came under attack. And uh, machine guns and bombs and so on. My memory is a little bit vague of it now. The last thing I, most, first thing I remember was shoving my wife and daughter underneath a bench in the departure lounge booming and banging was going on. We were able to get out uh, without being hurt, uh, but several people were killed in the TWA line right next door to us. It was a, a harrowing experience, I will say. But fortunately, we, we got out okay. Well, Sam, this has been um, really a unique opportunity to hear a um, firsthand account of um, really some very, very memorable history and for both CIA and the Near East Division. If our audience um, is interested in reading more about that uh, history, there are several books that Sam and I can recommend for you. One is the novel by David Ignatius called Agents of Innocence. Uh, another is a biography of the CIA operations officer, a colleague of ours, Bob Ames, called The Good Spy. And finally, there's a book um, about uh, the uh, Munich massacre 
called One Day in September by Simon Reeve. Um, so you might want to take a look at uh, one or more of those. I want to thank my good friend, Sam. This has been really a historic opportunity, and I'm sure our audience will really enjoy it. Thank you, Jim. So, um, nice to sort of go back down memory lane, even if it's kind of sad sometimes. But Yeah, as you said before uh, we began recording, there's a lot of sand between our toes. Right. Okay.